folks, and welcome to episode 641 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. This is Monster Kid Radio, and this is the podcast that opens every week with a song. A surf song. Instrumental surf. Surf and monster movies just seem to go well together like chocolate and peanut butter. And this time around, we're playing the song Dr. Jekyll from the band Resonadori Surf. It is from their EP... Pata de Perro Corazon de Pollo, and you can find it over on their Bandcamp page, which is over at resonadoresurf.bandcamp.com. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes, but if you want to go there yourself right now, go to r-e-s-o-n-a-d-o-r-e-s-u-r-f.bandcamp.com. Pick up the album, pick up all their music, and let them know that Derek M. Cook from Monster Kid Radio sent you. That's me. I'm the writer, host, and producer of this show and i'm excited for this week because i'm inadvertently giving you a sneak preview of the kind of content you're going to get next week and basically all of next month here on the podcast because this time around we're taking a look at a movie that i've looked at before here on the show we're looking at the movie the return of the vampire which is a personal favorite of mine especially when it comes to old bela lugosi one of my absolute favorites one of the patron saints of Monster Kid Radio, and I shared this movie with the love of my life, with Beth. She sat down and watched this movie with me earlier today, in fact, and we're going to talk about it here on this week's episode of the podcast. I'm excited to get to it. Of course, we can't get to that until we get through some of the other stuff that makes Monster Kid Radio special. That includes Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review, and of course, Kenny's look at famous monsters of Filmland. Let's go ahead and roll into all of that. You know, actually, let me give you a heads up first. Beth is on this episode. And if you need more Beth in your audio diet, I'm going to recommend you check out the latest episode of The Big Scary Show, episode 300. Their Halloween spooktacular. Beth joined a handful of others on their Halloween roundtable, haunted roundtable. They had a clever name for it. You need to go listen to it for yourself. It is a massive episode. It's not just Beth and the others talking about haunted attractions and the history of Halloween. There's a lot of really cool stuff in the entire episode, and I do recommend it. If you want to skip ahead to the roundtable where Beth is a participant, it's around the 45-minute mark, and then it's a great conversation about the history of haunts, haunted attractions, things like this. This recording took place uh, several weeks ago, so some things may have changed you know, for Beth since then, but... It's a great conversation. I highly recommend it. Go over to BigScaryShow.com to listen to it. And of course, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes over at MonsterKidRadio.net. All right, now let's get on to the rest of the show. How about now? No? Yeah, no. begins as a summer vacation. A young family finds a beautiful old house. It could be the answer to their dreams. So you are the people who want to rent this house. Well, you mean it's $900 and then it's all ours? Or the beginning of a nightmare. <laughs> Burnt Offerings, starring Karen Black. Are you actually trying to tell me that this house is responsible? Oliver Reed. This house is destroying us. Oh, God! Betty Davis. This house is getting so cold. Burgess Meredith. This house will be here long, long after you have departed. You believe me? Eileen Heckert. When it comes alive, 
tell them what it's like. Burnt Offerings from United Artists. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. The curse of the mummy's tomb. A bandage and bone monster stalking the cryptomaniacs who defiled its tomb of terror. And the Gorgon. A she-monster who turns living, screaming flesh into silent stone. It's a two-for-one. Monster Bazaar. Two terrific terrors for the price of one. With the never-before-offered special free bonus. Black stamps. Of your favorite monsters for the first 10,000 people in line. It's the curse. The curse of the mummies, too. And the Gorgon. He said the Gorgon. Both in petrifying color, you know. They will brighten you. Yeah. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Return of Ultraman, Episode 34, An Unforgiven Life. Original air date, November 26th, 1971. Things are a little slow at Monster Attack Team Headquarters, the most significant incident being the detection of an unusual electromagnetic wave in the middle of a normal residential neighborhood. Ken Sakata is wrapping up his workday when he's approached by a scientist with an urgent request. He needs a stand to be made, custom-built for research, overnight if possible. When Go arrives and recognizes the scientist as his childhood friend Ichiro Mizuno, the ice is broken and Ken agrees to make the device. That night, Jiro is sent to deliver the stand, and as a thank you, Mizuno gives him a tour of his home, which has been remodeled into a science research facility. Jiro shows enough interest that Mizuno can't help but divulge his discovery, the Alpha Leon magnetic wave, and his goal, to create an animal-plant hybrid. His use of the Alpha Wave attracts the attention of MAT once again, but Mizuno denies his activity to them moments before his experiment succeeds and planimal monster Leogon springs to life. Before Mizuno can toast his victory, Leogon multiplies in size and escapes. Jiro has a close encounter with the growing kaiju and returns to Mizuno's house seeking answers. In a fit of rage, Mizuno nearly strangles Jiro. Finally, threatening to kill him and Ken with cobra venom if the boy tells anyone what he knows. The secret will not be kept, however, as Leogon grows to full kaiju size, capsizing a ferry boat. MAT finally has something to do, but they realize they will need Mizuno's help to dispose of Leogon. But will the mad scientist really agree to destroy his own creation? For the second week in a row, Return of Ultraman tells a heavy, tragic tale, and while episode 34 suffers just a bit in comparison to its immediate predecessor, The Monster Tamer and the Boy, it's a fine installment in its own right, veering into some dark thematic areas 
and offering some authentically shocking moments. The character Ichiro Mizuno, as played by Mikio Shimizu, is a mess. A truly mad scientist driven by demons of the past, drinking heavily, choking little kids, choosing to be consumed by his quest. Amazingly, An Unforgiven Life was written by a 16-year-old named Shinichiro Kobayashi, who would, nearly 18 years later, write the story treatment for the feature film Godzilla vs. Biollante, in which the Big G goes to battle against a giant hybrid plant monster. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. From award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan, White Zombie, a new novel based on the classic motion picture. What do you see? Neil asked. Madeline peered into the wine glass, pretending to be a fortune teller, and for a moment her head reeled. She did see something within the depths of the cup. Terrible dark eyes staring up at her, boring into her mind. The eyes of that awful man they'd encountered in the road. You see? She felt dizzy now, really dizzy, and her throat was tight, as if cold hands were closing around her neck. What is it? Neil asked, concerned. The eyes burned into her. She couldn't breathe. I see, she managed to gasp. Death. Available now in print and all ebook formats. Find it on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive Through Fiction, and other quality outlets. Also available in a special edition, including the complete movie script. Grab White Zombie before it grabs you. Details at sdsullivan.com. That is no other way. Listen. Do you hear? It's coming back. Turning the screen into a buzzing, crawling, creeping nightmare of terror. This is the son of the original fly, daring to explore the forbidden science of transmigration that brought horrible death to his father. You look as if you've just seen a ghost, old man. It was the fly. Fear that will fasten its choking grip on you as his weird experiments spawn the twisted monstrosities of a living hell. The rat man whose hands and feet are changed to paws. The living corpse who rose from his coffin. And the return of the fly, seeking revenge with a thousand eyes. Smashing anything that stands in his way. Suppose he does come here. What if Philippe does not have the mind of a human, but the murderous brain of the fly? Then he will have to be destroyed. Who knows the evil force that rules the night? 
Who calls forth those terrors from beyond the grave to prowl its shadows? Where is the overlord of the damned? Beware his coming. Beware the return of the Death Master. I can destroy you or turn you into the living dead or let you go. The most horrifying love story ever filmed. When she discovers what you are, she'll sicken at your name. Kill her. Kill her. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today we are talking about The Return of the Vampire. This film was covered in Monster World 6 from January of 1965, also known as FM 79. It was a six page article which included six photos. It was later reprinted in FM 45 and FM 58. Let's hear how the article introduced the film. Gulumbia Pictures Bloodbat starring Bella Lugosi. The threat of the vampire, the undead menace who thrives on human blood, has been the theme of many of the most memorable monster movies. Bella Lugosi, unquestionably the most experienced and capable portrayer of such creatures, once again donned his evil black cape for his supernatural role in Columbia's excursion into the unknown. In addition to featuring Bela Lugosi as a blood seeker, the film also had a werewolf. Matt Willis portrayed Lugosi's lycanthropic assistant, and the makeup he used was every bit as frightening as Lon Chaney in The Wolfman or Henry Hole in Werewolf of London. Nina Foch, star of Cry of the Werewolf, also a Columbia picture, gave a thrilling performance which added a great deal to the dramatic effect of the film. Frida Insecourt and Miles Mander rounded out the ghastly cast of this gruesome epic of vampirism and werewolfery. Following is the action-packed account of the fabulous 1944 Fiend film. A full synopsis followed. Here is a key scene. From Tesla's book, Sir John has gotten all the data he needs for destroying the thing and with Lady Jane's aid, he drives the stake into the vampire's heart. Meanwhile, Andreas is returning and senses that something is wrong. He rushes into the tomb, just as the stake is driven in, and writhes in agony as he feels the pain of the vampire. He screams, you've killed him, you've killed the master, and then falls unconscious to the ground. He then changes into a handsome young man who has lost all his memory. Whoops! Did I just spoil the ending? No, not quite. You'll have to read the rest of the article yourself, or watch the movie to find out. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. (laughs) 
I shall be your exorcist, not with a crucifix, but with a sword. Prince of Darkness, my Lord Satan, grant our prayer, we beseech thee. Revenge the death of my husband, your servant. Punish the righteous. The curse of the devil. Exorcism or sacrifice. Blessing or bestiality. The curse of the devil. Satan in control of the body and the mind. Light the fire. Send me to my master. Take me, Satan. Take me. And doom the Donenskys forever. The blood of a virgin. The jaws of a wolf. The night of a full moon. Thus will a descendant of Arrhenius become one of the truly damned. In the night of Valpurgis, Ilona accomplishes her mission. The curse of the devil. The violence that rages in the soul of every one of us. Can man be turned into an animal? Do animals become men? Is it possible to exercise the powers of Satan? Does the love of a woman really conquer all? The curse of the devil. Coming soon to this theater. When I was little, I saw the strangest, most beautiful lights in the sky. Up there, Wayne, old buddy. But no one would believe me. They wouldn't believe me either. I'm not used to leading scientists running through the streets of my little town. I didn't fall asleep at the wheel. Dog or something jumped on the hood. I heard we got a cattle mutilation right here in Little Creek. Yeah, same thing, different cattle. It's the fourth one we found today. I tell you, these cattle mutilations, is everyone all worked up and bent out of shape. It's just a monitoring device. It's human mutilations now. I don't think we ought to be shooting our mouth off about this in town. Sure. Hold on to your pants, everybody. It's as though someone left us a calling card. Mutilated! Miss me what a They wanted to keep track of us, and they needed me. You were chosen long ago. Chosen? This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula.
and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Alright listeners, I know next month is Nosferatu November, where we talk about vampire movies, but I am priming the pump. I'm starting early with a vampire movie that I really like, that we've talked about here on the show in the past. But it's one that we haven't talked about in a very long time, and I wanted to share it with my wife, Beth, so she's joining me this week. Hi! <laughs> she is sitting across from the table from me right now in the dining room, and we just watched The Return of the Vampire from 1943 a few hours ago, and, you know, we didn't talk about it after we got done, other than I'm really glad you watched it, and that's it, because I wanted to save all the conversation for... Well, this. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, great Bela Lugosi flick. Not one that I had seen before and kind of an interesting um, off-brand version of the typical Dracula tale, if you will. Not exactly the same, but a lot of the key elements we expect from a good vampire story. What I love about this is the more I learn about it, the more I discover that there were intentions to make this a Dracula story, a mm -hmm. sequel to Dracula, the novel, not the film. But Universal, because people didn't understand copyright law back then and they get scared whenever Universal said we're going to sue, Columbia backed off and said, well, we're just going to make it a different character then, that sort of thing. They could have, rightfully so, made this a Dracula story, changed the name to Dracula, whatever. And I've read some treatments of like a sequel to Dracula that could have been turned into a film over the years. I remember reading one which relocated Dracula himself to a plantation in the South, uh, which kind of sort of led to what Son of Dracula became. But like this one in particular could have been a Dracula tale and it would have worked just fine. I think it works as a non-Dracula story as well, but it's not just the Dracula connection for me that I really like. This is also one that doesn't get talked enough about when we talk about doing monster mashups or okay. monster rallies because this is a vampire and a werewolf. And Wolfman, yeah. yeah. And it's not the Wolfman. It's not the Wolfman, but it's a Wolfman. And I believe this came out, yeah, it came out the same year as Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. So... Those two films together kind of marked the beginning of let's mix up the monsters. Mm -hmm. We hadn't seen Dracula teaming up with any other supernatural being or monster up until this point. Yeah, maybe he had other bats or wolves or, or whatever. But, you know, now we've got Dracula holding a wolfman under his command, you know, as his thrall, as his minion. And I thought that was kind of cool too. Mm -hmm. But the other thing I love about this, and I realize... The whole point was, let's get what Beth thinks about this movie, and here I am going off the strong female component. 
I really enjoyed that. That you know, our our main protagonist who is is driving the fight to protect everyone from the vampire is a woman, and not just a woman. You know, sometimes we get like the young female ingenue who's trying to convince you that things are right, like uh, with the shrieking skull. Oh, the screaming skull. Or the screaming skull. Sorry, yes, the screaming skull. You've only seen it once. It's okay. That's right. It does kind of have a shrieking noise, but yes, the screaming skull where, you know, they don't believe her because she's young and uh, seen as being flighty and and not just a woman, but a young woman who would not have any credibility. Whereas in this, Lady Jane is a very educated woman who's taken very seriously in her field. And so it's it's an interesting different take on it. You know, you still have... Uh, little Nikki, uh, the the younger woman's character, to kind of play that beautiful ingenue, but the main protagonist is a woman, and she is educated and attractive, and obviously well off. She, you know, she has her own money and her own will to do what she wants. There's no husband in sight holding her back in any way. Not that husbands do that, but you know. For the 40s. For the 40s, yeah. You know, uh, I don't know much about the actress who played her, Frida Anascourt, playing Lady Jane Ainsley. I, I wish I did, and I probably said this years ago when I talked about this movie on the show back then. There's just something about this character that I think I would have liked to have seen more stories about. Like, she knows her stuff, and it wouldn't even have to be a vampire story. I mean, it would be cool if she did more supernatural fighting monster type stuff, or at least knowing about it and getting people pointed in the right direction to do what they needed to do to deal with it. Mm-hmm. But I really like that so much. It seemed to be so out of character for mainstream Hollywood studio genre fare. Do you think it, I mean, I guess my first thought on that was, well, we're making it in the run-up to the U.S. entry into World War II, so naturally we're using more female characters because that's who's around. I mean... And that's something else that you brought up that I don't think we brought up when I talked about this movie years ago on the show, is that they go to great lengths to explain why her son is home. Like, he's, he's yes, he's an important character in that he's part of the plot, but right off the bat, before we have any idea of the significance of his importance, we see him in civilian clothes, and we've seen a few other people in military uniforms already, and they are just like, oh, he is a, look, here's an article, and he's a war hero, and all this stuff, and make it very, very clear that everyone is expected to do their part, and everyone is expected to pitch in, and all the men are expected to go to war, and the only reason it's okay to be back from war is that you were already basically shot down. Yeah. So they really go out of their way to explain that and explain why this young, capable man is not out there, you know, on the front lines. Even the two bumbling grave diggers who are clearly not normally grave diggers, they're just doing cleanup duty in their assigned area from the Blitz, are like, everybody's got to do their part. Mm-hmm. And it's so, yeah, it, it, there's definitely a strong propaganda feel in certain parts of it. And then I think at the end, the fact that the ending message is hold fast to your faith and your hope Mm -hmm. and you'll defeat all the evil 
I mean, that <laughs> that's a propaganda war message right there in and of itself, you know? Yeah, very uh, good. They pull out a cross and, you know, which, you at, know at different times, which... It's a vampire thing. It is, but not all of the typical vampire things are observed here, so it was fascinating to me when that became a, a at least a temporary solution which, at times. This is something uh, that I think... Sandy Peterson, the developer of the Call of the Cthulhu role-playing game, either just posted a YouTube video about or YouTube just showed me an old YouTube video of his mm -hmm. talking about vampires and the mythology and the lore about vampires and why mirrors sometimes are used as a way to show whether or not something is a vampire and the, the lore behind silver being a pure metal and... Mirrors were originally silver back, so silver reflections, you know, would impede whether or not you could see a vampire, that sort of thing, and how these days silver isn't used in a lot of mirror and especially lens material, whereas okay. back then it was, and that sort of thing. And I find that interesting, and I, I like looking at the different lore and legends of these classic monsters and seeing where things like this come from. You know, white garlic is used against vampires while it was viewed as a healing herb and a, and a uh, a health thing. So, of course, something that was viewed as healthy would fight something that is clearly not. Mm -hmm. And the whole staking of a vampire seems to come from we don't want them getting up and about, and we stake them to the ground. Not necessarily put a stake through its heart. We're, we're staking it to keep it from getting up and moving around. And and in this case, they were pretty much using giant army tent stakes. Yeah. <laughs> Do that with. Yeah, it didn't necessarily need to be wood. It just was a stake, and they staked it with this big metal spike to hold it, and just left it there, apparently, which you kind of had to do, because as soon as they come out... I do like that, that that wasn't just as a... It wasn't done just as a we're too lazy to bother actually looking for a piece of wood, or, or what. It, it was inserted sort of as part of the story where... The stake that they use gets mistaken uh, for something else, and then that creates the wrinkle that allows the whole second uh, act to happen. We're sitting here watching it, and vampire gets staked, and you look over at me, and he's like, "There's a lot more movie left, right?" I'm like, "That's it's <laughs> this is an oh, awesome prologue." Well, like twenty five minutes in, <laughs> if that. that, I think you're being generous. Yeah. I had forgotten that when he gets staked and he gets unstaked, he makes that sound, that <laughs> sound, which would, I guess, suppose happen whether it was a vampire or not, with like the, the, the gases in the body escaping, maybe making a noise. I don't but, know. We'd have to ask Sir Christopher Lee, and apparently he knows, and <laughs> you know the story I'm referencing? I know the story that Christopher Lee would correct Peter Jackson on set of the Lord of the Rings movie. That's not what it sounds like when you stab someone through the back. This is. <laughs> so Okay, Chris. All right. Well, that took a dark turn, but... Yeah. We, we, yeah, so I, I liked that if they weren't going to stick to traditional vampire lore, that they at least gave a reason for it. Well, and, you know, we, we talk about traditional vampire lore and that sort of thing. And, you know, this is 1943. And so many, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately anyway, especially when it comes to the idea of, like, remaking certain films and things like that. 
film has kind of become our modern day mythology mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. We don't have the sitting around the story, somebody telling us a story by candlelight anymore or by campfire anymore. We have movies and TV to tell us the stories. And if they get reinterpreted, you know, that's just, that's how stories work. That's how legends are born. That's how mythology works. And the mythology of the vampire seems to come to us from films so much. You know, at that point, had the quote-unquote rules of vampirism really been established to include very specific types of stakes and very specific other things? You know, it's it's interesting that you say that because there was one thing that happened in the movie. Uh, they referenced it once. We saw it happen on a separate occasion, and it's something that I happen to know from my background knowledge is uh, something that's done in a totally different culture than you might associate with vampires. So in a lot of the Celtic traditions, uh, you'll see people be buried with, if they've uh, immigrated, you'll see them be buried with a little bit of soil from Mm -hmm. where they're originally from or from where their family is from. And in the movie, Armand makes a, the vampire makes a uh, big point of saying that he's going to rest in his coffin, but that it's, it's got soil from his home. Mm-hmm. And he has to rest in his home soil. Well, when he goes to take a certain victim at one point, you'll notice he scoops up soil from the ground from the churchyard right where he's at and starts to add that to a coffin as if, He's going to take that victim and and that he needs that victim who will presumably become sort of a vampire themselves to have soil from where they're from in order to rest easy where he's going to take them. So that it, it was an interesting uh, thing to notice. And then, you know, thinking about it, where does that come from? Maybe that predates movies. Maybe that part of vampires comes from earlier traditions and ghost stories and things like that. Yeah, and I think where we see, like, where most of the lore of a classic monster come, coming from the movies is really less about the vampires anyway, but more like werewolves, the whole mm-hmm. silver bullet, silver cane, you know, a lot of that comes from film, not necessarily from the, the lore of the Wolfman. So it was interesting to see this movie, even though the Wolfman had come out previously, so they did have that reference this different take on the werewolf mm-hmm. uh, where there's no silver whatsoever and just years of therapy apparently cured it to him of becoming a creature of the night or a thrall or a wolfman or a lycanthrope or whatever it is he is. I don't know if they ever actually flat out say he's a werewolf, but he does have wolf hair, so maybe, I don't know. Yeah, but at the end he's sort of like the modern Hulk in the MCU where he can be Hulk and keep his brain at the same time. Well, you did say something like, holy Mark Ruffalo, you know. And yeah, he did in fact look a bit like it. Yeah. Or maybe it is Mark Ruffalo and he's just still aging really well. I don't know. Uh, probably not, but... Uh, probably, you say probably. Probably not, okay. but, you know, Matt Willis, who who played Andreas, I think did a, a fantastic job of embodying the character as it changed personality, whether it was being controlled or not, or fighting control or not fighting it. It, That was an interesting uh, dichotomy to see and to see the struggle there within the actor. Uh, It's nice. It was nice for me to have the movie 
not just be a monster romp, but have some real human emotion and feeling in it. And that's something that you see, especially in the first film, The Wolfman, and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, where Lon Jenny Jr.'s Wolfman also has that very strong humanity streak running through him, dealing with the torture of turning into something he has no control over and losing that kind of control. And that's something I'm sure Matt Willis and, and company picked up on when dealing with that transformation. They also did a lap dissolve to show the transformation, which is something that Universal did with all the Wolfman movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of thing. I don't remember Universal ever doing a swap of the image the way they did on this one because he's yeah. got a little, little mole on his face that hops to the right-hand side in one shot and then back again during one of the transformation scenes. But otherwise, the lap dissolves were just as good as anything you see in a Universal film, I thought. Oh, I thought so. Yeah, for the time, I thought yeah. it was nicely done. And uh, he did, there were a couple of places where they were clearly overlapping some transitions of sure. things. And I, I thought that they were, they were well done by cast and crew in that case. Mm-hmm. Since we're talking about transformations and all that, I want to mention real quick and ask you what you thought, because I think you even went, ew, when it happened. At the end, when Bela Lugosi's Armand Tesla is dissolving in the sun. You know I don't like a melty face. That's the first time we've really seen that. Yeah. You know, in film. Uh, you know, Nosferatu does a little bit of dissolving in the sun or whatever, and not like that. So every time we've seen, especially a Lugosi-flavored vampire or Dracula die, it's usually take a stake to the heart and he stops moving. And maybe in a sequel, we'll see a wax dummy of him sitting in a coffin somewhere mm-hmm. and not even get referenced or, or whatever. He's just kind of there in the background, that sort of thing. So to actually see the decomposition that just lasts for a second, mm-hmm. I wish it had lasted longer, you know, to kind of get your real shock out of it. But it was enough to be like, wow, that's... I'm guessing that was a one take and, and we're getting yeah. to it and be done Yeah, um, sort of effect. But I, I think it's an interesting thing for me to see that the evolution of vampires disintegrating in the sun, that being a step to where we finally have like Christopher Lee burning up in the sun in Horror of Dracula, which I know you haven't seen yet, but his his decomposition is by daylight is pretty cool. So to see that step was kind of neat. Well, and I, I found it interesting that in kind of this first time where we actually see something happen to the vampire uh as far as aging or to give the idea that he's lived well past what he should have. Um, I did like the melting in that it showed that it wasn't just like you're dead, but you get to stay perfect and beautiful forever. That felt weird. Or in, you know, a lot of modern media, the kind of cheat is to just poof, the vampire's dust. Okay. Next one. <laughs> Cause I mean the, the CGI budget for Buffy was just never going to be enough to melt everyone's face obviously but it was nice to see that level of detail and even if i don't particularly like melting faces as a usual form of entertainment (laughs) this movie i i don't think i had seen this movie beforehand before i kind of built this up in my head but being a monster kid somebody who read about dracula and all that when i was a kid and reading vampire stories and that sort of thing anything to get my hands on i did kind of build up in my head these are the rules of a vampire there's very specific mm-hmm. ways to control them and, and kill them and i never liked that when you stake them they go away when they poof up because to me 
you want to be able to have that opera for the story mm-hmm. to remove the stake and it revives, which right. happens in this movie. Yeah. Whereas if you stake a vampire and they just poof gone, well, then you don't have that opportunity. But the daylight is always fatal. You know, the stake is yeah. a temporary stop. Just kind of leave it alone, put it somewhere, behead it, or daylight is always fatal. But the staking. That's just, I, I, I have a head cannon that that is just an allergy. It's a disability that vampires have. And, you know, it's really mean of other people to take advantage of somebody's disability. Well, there are people, there are real life people that have that reaction to the sun. I know. Oh, yeah. That has been yeah, so. attributed a little bit to that. The, the, the headcanon thing, the ways to deal with vampires, and I know we're kind of away from the movie here, but yeah. I'm curious, you mentioned Buffy, and I know you watched Buffy a lot, and I, I didn't. I I never watched a full episode. I watched the original film, that's about it, but I just never got into the, the actual Buffy or Angel or any of that stuff, and I know you did, right? It didn't hurt that I was in the same graduating class as the Scooby gang was on the show, so I had a lot of the the cultural touchstones in. Sure common um so yeah demographic yes i I watched pretty much all of buffy all of angel you know really enjoyed those and so when it comes to vampires there are other things that get brought up in other films that i enjoy as weaknesses disabilities if you want to call it that or whatever um and i don't know it's just something that that you're familiar with these are buffy or your stuff there is an episode of the x-files where they run into some vampires Mm -hmm. and fox Mulder distracts one by throwing sunflower seeds in front of them and the vampire's like, oh, man. And then OCD-like, he's got to stop and count all the sunflower seeds. Is that something that you've ever come across or, um, or familiar with at all, that kind of need to always count things? I've heard of that. I don't remember it being a part of oh. Buffy necessarily. You think that's where the count from Sesame Street came from? I'm, just, I'm being serious. I'm not trying to be funny. <laughs> well, maybe. I mean... Huh. I don't know. Because he can count? Yeah, he's the count. And he loves to count. And there's a song there somewhere. Anyway, um, the other thing that comes up in a Hammer film or two. Yeah. At least one. No, it happens a couple times. They can't cross running water. Mm. Does that come up in Buffy or anything that you've... I believe that comes up in there and then the like can't come in without being invited, which she straight up invites him in in this movie. Yeah. Oh, why don't you come in and be go go wherever you want in my lab and my hospital full of victims? No problem, wherever nope. you like. And I'm like, no. The it is not the last Hammer Dracula film, but it's the last one featuring Christopher Lee. He's ended by Hawthorne Bush. Okay. Because the Hawthorne branch is what the crown of thorns was made out of. That was put on Jesus's head before the crucifixion. So it has special significance. Is oh, that something you're familiar with or have ever seen? Any, I've never seen it anywhere else other than so this know, one vampire. Movie. I haven't heard the Hawthorne one, but I have heard in multiple instances that the stake has to be made out of the same wood as the Judas tree that Judas hung himself on, and that leads into some uh, Catholic adjacent 
iconography that deals with like is Judas the first vampire and is that where we get vampires born and the reason why silver is a thing is because of the 40 silver pieces Forty silver pieces yeah and, exactly. and that, that is actually comes up in the movie Dracula 2000 I believe um, starring Jerry Ryan and a few other people that I had no idea or or, or uh, were in that <laughs> yeah just it was bizarre to see people in that movie that were in that movie I just anyway um who played Dracula in that? It was the guy who played the Phantom of the Opera in the musical version. Uh, the film musical. Oh, um, by Dad, yeah. Gerard Butler. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, Gerard Butler played Dracula in that. Yeah, I think. Listeners, let me know. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, the silver thing, you know, has a couple of different, you know, potential backgrounds. The wood, I've also heard, now that you said it, it, it actually has to be a stake from the original cross. It can't just be the same wood. It has to be from the original Oh, cross. wow. That's really specific. Which makes it very hard, I would suppose, to track. I mean, there are a lot of... Or, or kill a vampire. I mean, so you just, like, try to... What's it called? Relic? There are a lot of relics out there, although I don't know how many of them are real, but, like, can you kill Dracula with, a, with, with like, a sliver? Does that... You know what, that goes, but like, how big does the wood have to be? Like, can you just, like, poke them a lot with a toothpick? I mean... But does it have to be in the heart? Or, like, if the sliver gets into his bloodstream and goes septic to his heart, does that... Ca- I, I'm not... We could go forever on this, but... That's true. That's true. Let's get back to the movie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love that this movie has so many other genre connections. I was looking at the cast and crew list, and... Uh, you know, Griffin J., who's one of the co or the screenwriters, mm-hmm. wrote a ton of other uh, genre films. You know, The Mummy's Tomb, Captain Wild Woman, The Mummy's Ghost, Cry of the Werewolf, which is an underrated, I feel. Which he must have done just after this, based on release date. Yeah, it was 44. 44. Uh, Devil's Bat Daughter, Devil Bat's Daughter, which is also another really good one. Uh, so he did those. And then you've got. Well, and then. Uh... The guy whose idea this was based on mm-hmm. was uh, worked on The Fly. Kurt, yeah, uh, no. Kurt Newman. Yeah, he worked on The Fly, which, you know, is a different era of horror and genre stuff. Because I think you associate The Fly, I have to double check the actual release date. Yeah, it's 58. With like the 50s horror, atomic horror, yeah, you know, sci-fi horror. horror. But he worked on, he was the director of The Fly, director of She-Devil mm-hmm. and Kronos, which I still need to see. In a handful of other movies as well, which I find really interesting. Uh, Lou Landers is also somebody whose name I've seen a lot over the years in the movies that I've watched for here, for the show. So to see all these other genre connections outside of the obvious Bela Lugosi is pretty cool. And Bela was just born to play a vampire. He's so he just good. was. He just, he's got the look. He's so good. I, and he's a different kind of vampire than what Christopher Lee would do. He's not the vicious animal. He's the the sophisticate. He's the guy in the tuxedo. You made a comment about that suit being sharp. It's just mm, looking cool. I can see where he could pose as the affable scientist sure. coming to town in a way and, and be seen as a non-threat when he turns on the charm like that and kind of goes into grandpa mode, if you will, or dad mode a little bit. He's he's still proper. He still looks great, but he's just a little more at ease with people or the appearance of being at ease with people. 
I'm not sure all of the other Draculas and main vampires, the other actors who have played him, can do that quite as easily. Many of the people, I think, because of their extreme features, like Christopher Lee, tend to look very harsh and, and mm -hmm. exotic all the time. He's able to shift between... Bella is able to shift between the roles a little bit. And, you know, here. as much as Lugosi is associated with Dracula, he only played Dracula on screen for the films three times. Dracula, Abbott and Salome Frankenstein, and then a short film in which Betty Boop comes to life. <laughs> and he tells Betty Boop that she has booped her last boop. And that's it. And he may have played send-ups of Dracula... Uh, on other things or sure. various vampires like in this one or an actor playing a vampire like in another movie that I'm not going to mention in case you haven't seen it, listeners or Beth. But Lugosi also played a lot of mad scientist types or just flat out scientist types. And I don't think he gets enough credit for that until you really start talking about his contributions to the genre, at least I feel like. Mm-hmm. You know, because he was in The Devil Bat, and he did a handful of movies for uh, Poverty Row films and that sort of thing. And, of course, Bride of the Monster, you know, for Ed Wood, even. I mean, he played the mad scientist on a scientist type. Sometimes mad, sometimes not. Like in The Invisible Ray. And he's really good at it. Lugosi just... I know everybody talks about how Karloff was a better, more well-rounded actor between the two, but I've always been on Team Bela, and I will always be on Team Bela. I love what he does. I just love him. I love Karloff, too. There's no slide on Karloff. But if I'm going to hang out, if I'm going to watch a spooky movie, I want it to be Lugosi. I don't... Karloff sometimes makes me feel like he wants to just hang out and, like, give me Werther's originals. Oh, okay. And Fair enough. Lugosi, I don't want to take anything from him. And and I want that in my monster movie, guys. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> um, I think for me it's the... Other, other actors, there, there are other actors that I can enjoy as a Dracula type, but Lugosi is Dracula for me. It's like, they're all going to always be compared to him on some level or another. Yeah. Doesn't mean they can't stack up as long as they fit their individual piece that they're doing, but he's the picture that comes into my brain when I think of the character. Yeah. Yeah. When I think of reading Bram Stoker, that's the face that pops into my head. Really? So, yes. Wow. All right. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. And I don't know how much of that is just him or him looking like the Count from Sesame Street or both of them looking like my grandfather or, you know, <laughs> maybe some combination of all three. But <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> um, I, I just I really like this movie. I I hadn't watched it in a long time. In fact, it may have been since they showed it at Monster Bash a few years ago. The last time I saw it, and even then, I probably didn't watch the whole thing because there's just so much to do at Monster Bash. I'm antsy to get up and walk around and go do other things too at the same time. Sure. So I haven't sat down to watch it start to finish in a while. Uh, it was cool to kind of see it through your eyes and to get the war connection, which is not something I remember picking up on before. And yeah, the whole goodness is the most powerful force in the world. You know, the the whole bit there, not just with a cross, but 
you know, you're good. Just remember that you're good and let the goodness cure you of your, your werewolfism, Andreas. You'll be fine. Just be good because you're good. It, it does seem to really push the idea that your your inner thoughts are, are what will save you and your your will. And don't don't look anywhere else. Just look inside yourself for the strength to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do it. You know? Yeah, yeah. Which does get touched on again in later films as well. You know, House of Dracula. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's it's determined that the Wolfman's trigger to turn into a Wolfman is all in his head. That there's there's something wrong inside his brain that needs to be corrected, and he doesn't turn into a Wolfman anymore. Well, at least until the next film, which they never explain. But <laughs> you know, he just starts doing it again. Although what is briefly discussed in the movie Return of the... Two steps me, forward, one step back. What do you, you know, the mental health is a journey. That, that's what we all got to remember. See another great takeaway from... From this movie. Film. Uh, Return of the Wolfman by Jeff Roven, I believe is the author's name. I'll double check that and correct it in the show notes if I'm wrong, uh, which was officially licensed by Universal, does address that in his follow-up book to I'm Selling Me Frankenstein. It does come up. But anyway, and I only bring that up because I'm sure there's like two or three people. But well, wait a minute, they talk about it here. Anyway, um, this one has just got so much cool stuff going for it. It feels like a really interesting bridge between like the classic 30s Dracula film. Because there are long stretches of this where there's no music. Mm-hmm. It feels very theatrical. Yes. And then it bridges though to like the 40s with the monster mashup and the rally element. And the more kind of lighthearted, the two bumbling grave robber not grave robbers, but grave diggers, whereas in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, they're grave robbers yeah. that let the Wolfman out, which, and I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again, for my money, the best resurrection from the dead scene ever is Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And I've watched over 300 zombie movies. It's the <laughs> best, the way it's done with the two grave robbers breaking into the tomb and letting the moonlight come in and resurrect the Wolfman. So cool. Uh, this case, it's a little different. It's a couple of people that are trying to fix the graveyard after it's been bombed by the Germans or the stock footage. And <laughs> which, you know. I okay, mean, I will call them out that at least one of the shots, that was World War One footage. And you can oh, yeah. tell. It was, I'm like, those aren't even the right helmets. What are we doing? <laughs> I'm sure it's either stock footage that was actually shot by some news crew somewhere, but more yeah. than likely, it might have been footage used. Uh, in other films. In another movie. That Columbia had yeah. to own and not take very good care of because it was all scratched up. And all right. That. But that happens. It comes with the territory with these movies sometimes. You just have to accept it and that's fine. I, I love the idea that that's what sets the vampire free. That this force of evil, the Nazis, are coming. But when they're done, they've left a bigger mess behind because they let Tesla out. And it just, I like that escalation. I just, I just undig it. This movie's just really cool. I think it's probably one of my favorite Legosi films. It, it, you know, it, I was entertained all the way through. I did have that brief moment where I was like, oh, this is why it's called Return of the Vampire. Okay, I see where we're going here. But I was entertained all the way through, which not all older movies can always do that because they can sometimes Come, some movies can come across as a little formulaic. I think especially during the war years, it, it was probably pretty tempting to just yeah. redo a lot of the same things, you know, with new 
paint and spackle on it several times over. But this really does stand up on its own and feel very theatrical and, and almost worthy, like stage presence at, at times. So much of it was so deliberate. Yes. The shadow work, you know, seeing the shadows, reminiscent of Nosferatu, seeing the shadow of the vampire on the wall doing stuff. Or towards the end when he's, when Tesla is looming over Nikki and Andreas is there at the cross and trying to beat him to the mm-hmm. to the victim, I guess, and holds the cross up. And we don't see the cross. We see the shadow of the cross being shown across. Just very deliberate camera work and shadow work being used here uh, in a way that sometimes, especially in the late 40s, early 50s, very formulaic, very... Mm-hmm. The audience had changed. They, they realized they were making these movies for a much younger crowd. Yeah. They became very short. They felt a lot like serials. They were just banging them out. There was a year that they put out two mummy movies in the same year because they were just banging them out. And they would reuse a lot of the same footage, mm-hmm. you know, to, you know, why are we going to go send a crew out to shoot a bunch of, you know, a camel train out in the desert when we did that four movies ago? Well, let's just use that again, you know? Oh, okay. I will bring up, there was, there was only one oops that, other than the fourth wall break at the very end of the movie, which is incredibly intentional. Yeah. There was a moment where they flipped a frame. Yeah, I mentioned that earlier, that kind of near image effect for the mole hopped. Yeah, (laughs) so little things like that made me go, you know what, somebody at the studio said, just flip it, it'll be fine, or whatever. And it almost makes me wonder if it was something like the edge of that piece of film got damaged so they moved the image over but then they needed to flip it to make it work or so you know it it was just a weird little like you can't have moles jumping all over the place Um, and there was one other moment where someone uh, one of the ladies had a glove on and then she didn't but other than that (laughs) yeah i think lady jane really needs to be kind of heralded as heralded yeah, that's the word. I would I would watch and or read and or listen to more Lady Jane adventures. That yes. that is my thought, and maybe someone needs to give us some more Lady Jane adventures. I I think so too. I mean, Columbia owns the film; it's on the public domain, so nobody's gonna be able to do that legally for a long time. Uh, but I really like that we have you know some older protagonists, some older foes against Dracula. We've got the guy from Scotland Yard who, and I didn't pick up on this nearly as much in earlier viewings of this. I don't think. He's clearly scheming. You know, he's got a little something-something burning for Lady Jane. You know, there's a, there's a shot there where she goes off with Armand Tesla, and he's kind of watching. And mm-hmm. I think the first time I saw it, I thought, he's just suspicious of the stranger. But this time around, I read into it this kind of, is that a little bit of jealousy? Is that is that a little jealousy you want to do? I think you're right. And that brings me to something else that kind of popped into my head. And you mentioned Scotland Yard. So there's another uh, uh, sort of connection. There's a show we watch where a character calls another character Lady Jane, but as a cute pet name. On Outlander, her friend, Claire's friend, the... uh, the other do- the black doctor that she works with okay. in Boston, he refers to her as Lady Jane, and I'm wondering if it's because of this movie. Huh. Because where the- they went through med school in the late 40s, early 50s together. Eh, that'd be kind of cool. 
this comes out and for I really wonder I, it'd be interesting to ask the author because it's in the books as well as the show if that's why she had that character do that because this is a very empowered smart yeah. medical doctor character which would be very like Claire from Outlander yeah so I mean obviously the, the creator of Outlander listens to the show so mm -hmm. you know why don't you shoot a thing thanks about? Diana yeah. you could just shoot us an answer on that that'd be awesome yeah I just the Lady Jane is fantastic and I love that this is something else I love about this movie is that we just dive right in mm -hmm. there's very little of the well it's not a vampire clearly you're wrong I mean yeah the Scotland Yard guys got a little bit of disbelief but we spend such little screen time on people not accepting the fact that there's a supernatural being hanging around heck at one point he even says to to his two deputies or whatever you don't think it's a vampire, do you? And they both go, yeah. <laughs> yes, we do. Absolutely. You know. Well, and that's the final yeah. shot is when that's, he breaks the fourth great. wall and looks at us, the audience. Well, do you? Mm -hmm. And again, that feels like a very mid to late 40s trope where things started to get a little playful. Dracula, Frankenstein, Bride of Dracula, Dracula's daughter, deadly serious. I mean, there's a few moments of light with the James Whale production, but they're very serious productions. We start to get a little playful in the 40s, and this one felt like a very playful moment. Uh, I see what you're saying there, but I think in addition to playfulness, it could be seen by younger audiences, like preteen or adolescent audiences at the time, as an acknowledgement Oh, yes, we're in the movie, but we can see you and we're real. So if we're real, maybe vampires are too. There's kind of that thrill or that goosebumps moment of feeling that for me. So I think depending on who you are and how you're taking it, that fourth wall break could mean different things. It's just a good time. I, I recommend <laughs> this one. And I will watch this again someday, I'm sure. Uh, I'm you know, I was sitting here watching it and I'm thinking, man, I should have waited till October, or I'm sorry, November. But I'm glad we watched it together because I think you would have really liked Lady Jane and I think I was right. Yes, yeah. So Lady I, Jane. I'm, I'm batting a thousand here, right? I, I haven't steered you astray yet? Not yet. All right. So next month, next week, Nosferatu November begins. Uh, we're going to talk about more vampire movies here on the show. Beth and I have a YouTube channel, the Team Death YouTube channel, where we've been reviewing local haunts that we've been going to. So please check that out. How do they spell Team Death? That would be T-E-A-M-D-E-T-H. Right, D-E for Derek, T-H from Beth. Check that out. There's always a link in the show notes. Beth, thanks for coming on the show this week. Absolutely. I'll find another really good movie to watch. Or we can just watch Manos again. Yeah, maybe not that. <laughs> Well, thank you for being part of the show this week. To everybody who was involved, Beth, Kenny, Mark, and you, dear listener, thank you for listening to the show, downloading, retweeting tweaks, sharing posts, and just letting everybody know about your favorite podcast that happens to be named Monster Kid Radio. Um, yeah, that, that didn't sound awkward at all, but you know what I mean. Thank you for sharing the word on the various social media platforms, whether it's Twitter or Facebook, where we have a page and a group, or you can hop over to our Discord our Reddit, or even on Patreon. We're all over the internet. You can't miss us, especially if you start your search at monsterkidradio.net, where you're going to find all of our contact information, 
like our email address, which is monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 360-524-2484. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear what you're doing for this Halloween season. Have you done anything awesome yet? Do you have anything coming up? I mean, this is basically your last chance to wish a happy Halloween to anybody here at Monster Kid Radio, so I'd love to hear from you. Maybe give us a call on Halloween night. Let, you, let us know how it's going, that sort of thing. Uh, there's also a link on our website to where you can buy tickets to the Joy Cinema's Scarathon. Now, we talked about this last week with Matthew Rashley. Matt and I talked about the five movies they were showing. Well, guess what? They've added a sixth. It's crazy. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's adding a sixth movie at the end of the night. He's playing Werewolf of London. Now, Jeff Punkrock Martin, the man behind the Joy Cinema and Scarathon, I've talked to him repeatedly over the years. He's a friend of mine, and I know for a fact that Werewolf of London is his preferred classic werewolf film. I know he loves this movie, so I'm ecstatic that he's having an opportunity to actually show this movie at his event that he loves so much. The Scarathon is going to be a blast, and Beth and I are going to be there. I have confirmed that we're going to have a table set up. Monster Kid Radio will be in the lobby, and then, of course, I'll be introducing movies quickly as well, because now we've got to squeeze six movies into the whole day, which... Darn, we've got to watch another horror movie? Bummer, especially one with a classic monster and classic pedigree like Werewolf of London. Oh man, our lives are really hard. Anyway, that's happening on Saturday, October 28th at the Joy Cinema in Tigard, Oregon. Check them out at thejoycinema.com or again, follow the link in the show notes. Also follow the link in the show notes to the Team Death YouTube channel. Team Death is team and then D-E-T-H. This is where Beth and I do our YouTube thing, and we've been posting some recent trips to various haunted houses or haunted attractions in the area. As of this recording, there are two. I've got a third one that I've shot that I need to edit still, and then we may be doing some other things leading up to Halloween that we'll post there as well. So please check that out. Like and subscribe as well. That's what you're supposed to do on YouTube, right? Right? I mentioned the Patreon earlier. Please pay attention to the Patreon. Sometimes I will post things on Patreon that you don't have to be a patron to see. Specifically, I'm bringing this up because next year I'd like to do something where I'm releasing some writing through Patreon, and then at the end of the year, you know, you'll have a complete story because I've done like 12 chapters over the course of a year. That's something that I'm working on or planning on at this point, so pay attention to patreon.com slash monsterkidradio for that. What's coming up next week? Well, we're going to be talking about a movie by the name of Blackula. That's right. Blackula here on Monster Kid Radio because we're kicking off Nosferatu November and we're going to do it in style with Blackula. I love Blackula. It's such a cool, fun, funky, groovy movie. I am excited to talk about it with Dominique Lamsey's here on the show. She's coming back to MKR. Been a while since I've had her on. We're going to catch up with her. I know she's starting to get more active with her blog again and her Facebook marketplace and everything. So we're going to talk about that. And then, of course, we're going to talk about one of the best black exploitation horror movies ever made, Blackula. That's coming up next week. I'm not sure what else is coming up in Nosferatu in November, but I have been talking to another Monster Kid Radio regular about having him come on to talk about a vampire movie that we may not have ever talked about here on the show before, but maybe we've played it in the movie stream over at twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio, so stay tuned for that. And you see how I brought up the Twitch stream? I bring it up because, well, there's horror movies playing on it right now. Twitch.tv slash Monster Kid Radio. This is the Monster Kid Movie Club. This is where I've been, been playing huge loops, 15-hour blocks of horror movies, classic horror movies. And right now, 
we're playing things like Bride of the Monster, Tormented, King of the Zombies, Valley of the Zombies, House of Ghosts, How My Dad Killed Dracula, I Eat Your Skin, and we've got a whole bunch of other little Halloween-y type stuff in there, some classic footage, some classic commercials, some Elvira commercials, so go check that out, and stay tuned to it, because it looks like Halloween Day, I'm going to get up good and early, and I'm going to go live on Twitch, and we're going to host some monster movies on Halloween Day at twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. Trick or treat, hop over to Twitch. That's not a good rhyme at all. Huh. And I used to think I was a rapper back in the day. Anyway, check out twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio and give us a follow over there. It doesn't cost anything to follow. Of course, if you subscribe, it helps support everything that we do here. But give us a follow on Twitch and watch some classic monster movies for free pretty much any time. Now, I'm trying to make sure there's stuff running there 24-7. All right, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for hanging out with us. Remember, Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content by Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution on commercial no derivatives 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Dr. Chuckle. That comes from the band Resonadori Surf and is from their album Pata de Perro Carazon de Porro. I'm going to make sure there's a link in the show notes, but if you want to go over there directly, just look up rosanidoressurf.bandcamp.com. Check out their EP. Pick it up. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Dr. Jekyll is copyright 2023 to them. My name is Sarah Kim Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. (laughs) 